you know, you don't need me to tell you that there is in our day a battle for the truth. That there's a battle for knowledge for what's true. In fact, you may not know this, we actually live in a day and age where it's questioned if we can even know anything at all. If absolute truth even exists, if knowledge is an illusion, if you can accurately perceive reality. And I know that sounds crazy, and that is crazy. But I'll have you know that this garbage that I'm mentioning here, this is taught in universities. It's taught in high schools. This is the agenda for half of the movies and TV shows you watch. I mean, this stuff is mainstream, absorbed in the very bloodstream of the culture. You see, the spirit of the age, you understand, is postmodern. It's postmodern. What that means is there is no objective meaning. There's no absolute truth. You can't know anything for certain, and to claim that you can makes you arrogant, stupid, or dangerous. See, unbeknownst to them, the masses have drunk the Kool-Aid fixed by Immanuel Kant in the 1700s, who said there's no way to really understand reality, and what feels like reality is only your perception of reality, which, by the way, is mutilated and warped. Friedrich Nietzsche said that knowledge is a self-contained set of illusions, there's no truth, there's no knowledge, there's no certainty, there's only the dream world that exists in your own mind, which feels like it's true. And then, and then there are these nutty French philosophers of the 19th and 20th centuries who said that language is a social construct, that words don't actually mean anything at all. And therefore, there is absolutely nothing true. There's no man, there's no woman, there's no right, there's no wrong. There's only what we claim to know, and all that is is a fabrication that we use to oppress and exploit other people. And see, all this trash, believe it or not, has infested the White House, and Disney, and school boards, and Amazon, and the culture as a whole, which means, which means more than ever, there is a fight to death for truth and a battle for what's real. And the reason why I tell you that, the point is, is that the elderly apostle, the apostle John, in the face of everything that the world says we don't know and we can't know and isn't real, in the face of all of that, the elderly apostle simply shakes his head, shrugs his shoulders, with a pen in his hand, tells us what we absolutely do know. Because we do. There is truth. There is certainty. God has spoken in a world full of maybes. There are unshakable salvation realities that we can and must bank our entire lives on. And that's exactly, that's exactly how John ends his letter that we know as the first letter of the Apostle John, which, you understand, doesn't merely end on a positive or optimistic note, but rather on a note of eternal and immovable certainty. Let's call it a triangle of salvation certainty. Because you know the thing about triangles, right? They are the strongest shape. Stable, mutually reinforcing sides. They are the strongest shape. They are unbreakable. The point is John ends his letter with a triangle. He finishes his letter by declaring three times in Greek, oida men, oida men, 
oidomen, or translated, we know, we know, we know. And what John says we know are the most staggering salvation, among the most staggering salvation realities revealed by God known to man. They are absolute deal breakers. These are reality, certain, unchangeable, unalterable, eternal, given by the Father, purchased by the Son. They are ours forever by faith in Jesus Christ. And oh, by the way, that's exactly what this final chapter has all been about. Faith and what it actually means to believe in Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, this final chapter is a perfect way to end this letter because the whole agenda of John, this whole letter, has been to give you assurance, right? Confidence is the issue for John. Not confidence in ourselves or anything we have done, but confidence that the treasure of eternal life is ours by faith in Jesus Christ. Not that John took it easy on us, because he didn't. He was loving and he was never harsh, but he was also brutally honest and blunt, which when it comes to matters like eternal life is exactly what we need. But then you know John shifts gears in chapter 5 and he ends, he concludes with this epilogue on saving faith, what it is, how you got it, what it means to believe, what you should believe, and how you know what you believe is true. It's all here in 1 John chapter 5. And you see, as John ends the ending, as he finishes his letter, he doesn't taper off, he doesn't slow down, he doesn't dial it back, rather he increases in theological intensity by giving us staggering salvation realities upon which we bank our very souls. So to prime the pump this morning of what you're about to hear, let me just ask you, what do you know? What do you know for absolutely certain? What do you know that's true? And what I mean is, in those push-comes-to-shove moments, and those walk-the-plank moments in our lives, and those moments of deep discouragement and darkness and despair, what is it in those moments that you hang on to as absolutely true and real? Because those are the kinds of things that John wants to give us, and so let's find out exactly what these are. Here we go. If you have our notes, here's where we're going this morning. I want you to see from our last sermon in John, three salvation certainties. Three salvation certainties that sustain and support our faith as fallen people in a fallen world. Three salvation certainties that sustain our faith as fallen people in a fallen world. And salvation certainty number one is this. First, we have victory over sin through regeneration. We have victory over sin through regeneration. That's a certainty. And a massively encouraging one at that, because I'll just be totally honest with you, I am not totally sure that the church as a whole in America really understands the implications of what it means to be born again. I think the way most professing Christians in America would speak about being born again would have been, they speak about it in a way that's foreign to the apostles. Take the word addiction, for example, addiction. 
The apostles do not believe in addiction in the way it's currently defined in America because the way it's currently defined and believed by many Christians is profoundly unchristian. There's no Christ or Bible in it at all. You see, addiction, especially sexual addiction, is generally understood to be an incurable malady rooted in chemical and biological makeup or wounds in someone's past for which there is no cure. And therefore, many just assume that failure and patterns of unbroken sin are inevitable and incurable and therefore, at some level, excused and tolerated. This will not do, says the apostle. It doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to throw in the towel in the battle with sin, any sin for that matter. And the reason why is because God has not left us without arms. As believers, God has done something profoundly supernatural in the soul that although does not make sin go away yet, nevertheless frees us from the power that used to enslave us. That is a certainty. That is real. And what that's called is the miracle of being born again. It's exactly where John goes. Look at verse 18. He says, we know, there it is. We know that everyone who has been born from God, literally, does not sin. But the one who was born from God keeps himself, and the evil one does not touch him. And there it is, the all-important word, oidamen, we know. In a world full of maybes, here is a certainty. Here is something we know. Here is something that's sure. Here is something that is stable. And what's interesting is that the tense of the verb oidemen, we know, indicates a stable state of being that cannot change and can't be altered. This is a fact. This is absolute certainty. And the truthfulness of what we know does not depend on how we feel in our circumstances, nor necessarily, nor even upon our experiences. And yet tell us, John, tell us what it is exactly that is so absolutely certain. And he tells us that everyone who has been born from God does not sin. That's what we know. That's what's real. And what's interesting is that for the umpteenth time in John's letter, he mentions the miracle of regeneration or what he calls here being born from God. He loves this doctrine. And you should love this doctrine. And the reason you should is because it is the guarantee that once it happens to you, if it has happened to you, you are freed from the power of sin's control. But again, we have to ask the question, okay, what is the new birth? What does it mean to be born again? What is this thing called regeneration? And what it is, you understand, is God's remedy for spiritual death. This is what God had to do to awaken us from the dead and the tyranny of sin's dominion. Because you remember, we were all born spiritually dead. Slaves of sin, hearts of stone, blinded by the devil, children of wrath, under the curse of God. And what that means is that if we were ever going to believe and get saved, God was going to have to intervene. He was going to have to infringe on our self-destruction. He was going to have to intervene and break us and capture our worshiping gaze. 
to see and believe in Christ, he had to ravish us and set us free from our idols by an unmatched beauty, which means what we needed to be saved was a miracle, a life-giving, soul-awakening miracle that God had to perform for you to believe and be saved. Without this, we were never going to believe. Without this, we were never going to see the humanly incurable corruption of the human soul, nor of the matchless beauty of Christ. Therefore, therefore, to be born again is an instantaneous awakening by God through the gospel that opened our eyes to the glorious beauty of Jesus Christ and awakened in us the very repentance and faith by which we were saved. That's what it means to be born from God. The question is, has that hit you this morning. The fact that every aspect of your salvation is owing entirely to God's sovereign initiative and choice. Top of the list, regeneration. Because see, the reason why this matters is because this is reality. This is reality. This is the explanation for how you believed and got saved. And this is also the reason why we are no longer a slave to the tyranny of sin's control. Because look what John says. Look what he says is the payoff and the the result of being born again by God. Verse 18, he says, we know that everyone who has been born from God, here it is, does not sin. Literally, is not sinning or does not keep on sinning. (laughs) Meaning what, John? What are you claiming that being born again actually produces in our lives? And what he means is not Not sin, not ever, although that'd be nice. Rather, the tense of the verb is very important. The tense of the verb indicates ongoing habits and patterns of sin. He means a life not dominated by sin, not ruled by sin, not controlled by sin, not a slave to sin, which means, listen carefully, when God awakens a soul from spiritual death, he sets them free from the power of sin's control. You see, you can be holy. You can. Why? Because in the new birth miracle, God provided the very power we need to do what he commands. In fact, all of the gnarly, stubborn sins in our lives that just never seem to go away can be overcome and mastered precisely because of the new birth miracle called being born again. I just ask you this morning, does that feel real to you this morning? Does that feel like that that could even be a possibility in your lives? Does a blameless life of consistent, persistent, persevering victory over sin even seem like that can be a reality? Because that's exactly what John is saying. The question becomes, the question becomes, okay, if that's true, that regeneration freed us from the prison and slavery of sin, and that is true, the question becomes, okay, well, how then does that actually play out in real life actual situations? Like when I'm tempted, for instance. I mean, does being born again make us bulletproof supermen? Invincible and immune to the sin around us? Or, or does being born again make us warriors who take no prisoners and show no mercy to the very sin that lurks in our lives? See for yourself. Look what John says in verse 18. 
We know that everyone who has been born from God does not sin. Here it is. But the one who was born from God keeps himself, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, I know your Bible says it different than that, but that's because there's a debate here uh, that says that this second reference to the one born again is actually a reference to Christ and that he is the one who keeps the believer. That's the view. In other words, uh, we have been born from God. Uh, Christ also was born from God, which I think they mean incarnation, and he is the one who protects us and guards us and keeps us from sin and the power of Satan. That is the view. And agreed, all of that is true. It's just that I don't think that's John's point here. I think the context demands that both people born again in verse 18 are you, and that the point of the second half of the verse is to explain why born again people don't live in sin. Why they don't loiter in sin. And the reason why they don't, look what he says, is because the one born from God keeps himself. In other words, John, this is very important, John is demonstrating that one of the unmistakable signs and manifestations of the new birth, get this now, is a ruthless, relentless vigilance and, if need be, violence over their own sinful hearts. That's what the word keep means. It's a military term. It means to guard. It means to protect. It means to preserve. It is an urgent, guns drawn, safety off vigilance. Where the gun of truth is always pointed at the sewer of our hearts, ready to unload on whatever it is emerges from the drain. In other words, just as plain as I can put it, here's what John is saying. Born-again people don't live in unrepentant patterns of sin, and the reason they don't is because they keep themselves. They labor and they fight sin with holy violence, the power of which to do so also comes from the new birth. Do you see? It's not that born-again people are never tempted again. It's that precisely in the new birth, we were given a killer instinct toward our sin. There was downloaded, as it were, born again instincts to be vicious and even violent with the sin in our lives. You see, people who this has happened to, they believe exactly what John Owen said. In the 1600s, John Owen is a pastor, theologian. In fact, this quote is so important, I put it in your notes. You should just have this. In fact, it's going to be one of our quotes on Sunday morning. But listen to what John Owen says. This is massive. He's very insightful about sin and the human heart. Listen to what he says. Sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up in the heart to tempt or entice, should it be allowed to have its way, would go out to the utmost sin of that kind. For instance, every unclean thought or glance would be adultery, if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression, if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, if it could. Might it be allowed to grow? Every rise of lust, should it be allowed to run its course, would come to the height of villainy. It is like a grave that is never satisfied. 
Therefore, he asks, do you mortify or crush your own sin? Do you make that your daily work? Are you always at it and cease not a day from this work? Here it is. Be killing sin, he says, or sin will be killing you. That's what John is talking about. That's exactly when he's talking about when he says that the one born from God keeps himself. Because you've heard the expression, right? Where there's a will, there's a way. See, John's point is very simply this. In the believer, there is both the will and the way to be holy, and God is the one who made them both through the new birth. So the question becomes, okay, how do you keep yourself in the way that John describes? How do you do this? How do you be killing sin, lest the sin in your life should be killing you first? The question is, what instrument, what mechanism, what weapon is it exactly that God has given you with which you hack to death the mutinous enemy residing in your own soul? And you know the answer. You know exactly what it is. The only weapon there is, at least the only good one anyway, namely the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Don't you see, this is so massive. The power to be holy available in the new birth is supplied through the means of the scriptures. The power to obey, bought with the blood of Christ, becomes experientially ours in real time when we read the word, when we remember the word, when we recite the word, and when we rely on the power of the word in real life, actual situations. I want to shift your thinking about the Bible this morning away from being a rule book or instruction manual, boring, to being a portal to the very power and presence of God himself because that's exactly what it is. The point is, the more you get this book absorbed into the bloodstream of your soul, the more savage you will be with the sin in your life. And so again, the question is, I ask you, do you keep yourself in the way that John describes? Do you keep yourself from sin? Although highly imperfect and a work in progress, I'm with you, I'm in that line. Is there nevertheless a killer instinct in your life toward the sin in your heart? Because that's the evidence that we're born again. And, and, and look what John says. Look what, look what the apostle says cannot and will not happen if we go to war with our sin, with the word. End of verse 18. It's a staggering statement. He says, we know that everyone who has been born from God does not sin. But the one born from God keeps himself. Here it is. And the evil one does not touch him. That is exceptionally insightful. Did you see what John is saying? He's talking about the devil. He's talking about the evil one. And he says, he cannot touch us. Meaning what? Meaning not that the evil one can't do anything should God let him off the leash, but that he can't use any of our own sins against us because there aren't any sins for him to grab onto. 
In other words, if we keep ourselves in the way that John describes, if we are living lives of repentance and holy violence against the sin in our, in our own hearts, John says that makes us literally untouchable to the evil one. Because you realize, and you've seen this happen a hundred times over, scandals, heartbreak, families ravaged by sin, divorces, church splits, pastors crash and burn, all because someone in the mix had secret sin in their lives to which the evil one put a match and burned their lives to the ground. The question is, do you have secret sin and kindling in your life? Because logic, common sense tells us to never ever leave loaded guns when there are little kids around. Gospel sense tells us never leave sin out when there is a lion around. Because the evil one is a roaring lion to be sure, but a holy saint you understand makes an unappealing meal. That's a certainty. And that brings us to salvation certainty number two. These will be shorter. Salvation certainty number two, we have freedom from Satan's world through redemption. We have freedom from Satan's world through redemption. Because you and I both know that the current attack on the truth in America comes in the form of things like postmodernism, and cultural Marxism, and critical race theory, and white privilege, and intersectionality, and the Black Lives Matter group. These are all evil things with really evil and divisive ideologies that seek to undermine biblical truth and replace it with something that in the end can only destroy. What's crazy, what's very interesting to me, however, is that even though all those beliefs and ideologies are so wrong at the deepest possible level and should never be embraced, there is something that they do get that is exactly right. You know what it is? They know that something is deeply, deeply wrong with the world. And they're right. There is. They just don't know what that is. But John knows. And we know. And John reminds us again exactly what that is. Look what he says in verse 19. What's wrong with the world? He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And there it is again. Oidamen. We know. We know something. Something real something certain, something true, something non-negotiable, something upon which we stake our eternities. What does John say that is? John says, we know that we are from God. We are from God. Did you know that? And you might be thinking, that's not true. I'm not from God. You're not from God. We are from earth. We are from the planet. We are from Adam. We are from the human race, right? Not anymore. If you're in Christ, now you're from God. You see, now your backstory has changed. Your story has changed. Your status has changed. Your origin has changed. What, what does this mean? What does this mean to be from God? It means two things. Listen very carefully. To be from God refers to sovereignty and to identity. 
To be from God refers to sovereignty and identity. First, sovereignty. To be from God, get this, is a shorthand way to describe the sovereignty of God over our salvation. Meaning every single thing that it took to get you saved was from God alone. His sovereign initiative is the deepest explanation for our salvation. And so in that sense, we can legitimately be said to be from God. Does that make sense? But then there's identity. Identity. See, we're not only saved by God. We are, in fact, so saved by God that what he has done in his son is now the defining aspect of our identity. Everything that used to define us and explain who we are and to which we look to for meaning before Christ has literally been swallowed up in everything that the Father has done in his Son. You understand, we are so connected to the life of God through faith in Christ that we can legitimately be described as being from God himself. Because you've heard of DoorDash and Uber Eats, right? You download the app, you order from the restaurant, and a third-party delivery person who does not work for the restaurant brings the food to your door. That's the point. The point is, this is not DoorDash Christianity. We are not Uber Eats Christians. In other words, we are not third-party middlemen between God and the world. No, God has so worked in our lives that we can be said to be directly from God. What I mean is, we are his ambassadors and direct representatives in the world. And the implications of that are just staggering, are they not? What are the implications? The implications are being from God, we exist for the glory of another. Being from God, we exist to advance the mission of another. Being from God, we were sent to proclaim the fame of another. The most important things about us are the achievements of another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, our lives are not our own to do with as we please. Rather, our whole lives have been swallowed up in a glory cloud of sovereign grace. All we are is who we are in Christ. What the heck does that even mean? It means his beauty is our joy. His mission is our meaning. His death is our deliverance. His resurrection is our hope. His word is reality. His promises are security. His glory, our reward, and his kingdom is our home. The question is, is his beauty your joy? Is his mission your meaning? Is his death your deliverance? Is his resurrection your hope? Is his word your reality? Are his promises your security? Is his glory your reward? Will his kingdom be your home? You see, what I'm asking is, what I'm asking is, do you live your life like you were from another realm? Is your life so utterly 
out of sync with the current evil world system? That the only explanation is that you are from God himself. Because speaking of the world, there's something really, really wrong with it. And John informs us exactly what it is. Look at verse 19. It says, we know, we know that we are from God. Here it is. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And that sure explains a lot, doesn't it? That's what's wrong. That's what's so messed up with the world that the postmodernists and atheists and critical race theorists can sense in some way, but they just don't quite understand because they are blind, namely that the whole world lies in the clutches of the evil one. I mean, the problem is so much worse than they ever even imagined. The question is, what does that mean? And, and what, what does one thing have to do with the other? I mean, you see how John has juxtaposed these two realities. What do they have to do with one another? In other words, what is the connection between us being from God on the one hand and the world being in the power of the devil on the other? What does this mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is that Satan is sovereign because he's not. And he never has been. And he never will be. Like everything, Satan does not have some free will to do whatever he pleases. He, like everything else in the universe, is under the infinite authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what it does mean, what it does mean is that he has been temporarily granted for a while to run his little scam behind the scenes. You understand the devil has a derived authority, a short-term hand-me-down power to deceive the nations and blind the world and seduce the human race who, unbeknownst to them, are already happily doing his bidding. You understand, the power of the evil one in this world is like a controlled burn. You know what a controlled burn is? Controlled burn is a fire deliberately set by experts that actually renews the health of the forest. The experts light the fire, they control the fire. It's a real fire, it rages and burns, but it's always under the control of the authorities and it always accomplishes what they desire. In the same way, the dragon rages and burns and breathes his fire, but always under Christ's authority, always meeting Christ's goals and designs, and one day Christ will put him out when he sends him to the lake of fire. What's the point? What is John saying? The point is, we are free from Satan's world through the power of redemption. Because we are from God, we don't lie in the power of the evil one, not anymore. Not since we're saved by sovereign grace. The point is, we're not under the spell anymore. We don't believe the sales pitch anymore. We see that there's little scams. We're not ignorant of his pathetic little schemes. Thanks to redemption and the power of the gospel, 2 Timothy 2.26, we have escaped from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. For though the hordes of hell may rage, their power will not endure. Our times are in the Father's hand. Our anchor is secure. That's a certainty. 
That's what's real. And John makes it really clear, doesn't he? Without, a, without an apology, without a single qualification, he informs us that there are but two realms to which you can belong, two, two powers that control who you are. You are either from God and belong to the Son, or you are from the world and you belong to the evil one. That's it. No third option, no middle ground. The million-dollar question is, to which one do you actually belong? The father of lights or the father of lies? The prince of peace or the prince of darkness? The lion of Judah or the lion that prowls around in the world looking for someone to devour? To whom do you actually belong and how would you even know? And you would know by answering this one simple piercing, penetrating question. Here it is. When you probe beneath the skin of your life and the watching eyes of human beings and no one can see you except God, in those moments, what do you love and live for the most? That's the question. And that brings us to salvation certainty number three. Salvation certainty number three. We have authentic knowledge of God through revelation. We have authentic knowledge of God through revelation. And I want to end this morning with a little Easter egg hunt. My private feelings on Easter and bunnies will remain for another sermon, but an Easter egg hunt for the sake of an illustration. Why don't you look at verse 20? And I want you to see if you can spot three glorious salvation theological realities. Three salvation realities that we know for absolute certain. Look at, look at verse 20. Look what John says. He says, we know that the Son of God has come. And he has given to us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. And there it is. The final side of the triangle, the, the triangle of salvation certainty. And did you notice the progression from verses 18 through 20? How John swam upstream theologically? In verse 18, he described our relationship to internal sin, which is victory. In verse 19, he described our relationship to the external world, which is freedom. And in verse 20, he describes our relationship to the e eternal God, which is that we know him and we are in him. Do you see that? And notice again, for the last time, verse 20, John says, oidemen. We know. We know something, because we do. Something certain. Something of absolute, earth-shattering significance. We know this. In fact, John squeezes three things, three realities, into this final certainty. And if you'll notice, even these are organized into a progression. In other words, they theologically tell the story of how you got saved. So here it is, a condensed, pressure-cooked summary of what it means to be saved and how you got that way. Glorious reality, number one. Look what John says. He says, we know that the Son of God has come. 
What is that? What is that called when God became a man? When he came to the earth that he created to save the people who sinned against him, what is that called? And you know exactly what that's called. What that is, is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, isn't it? You understand Jesus Christ is the eternal plan and love of God in human form. And you remember, you remember the incarnation means absolutely everything. And the reason for that is because without the incarnation, without the God-man, we don't know fully what God is like. Without the God-man, there is no substitute who dies for us. There's no atonement. There's no salvation. Without the God-man, there is no mediator between God and men. There's no, there's no reconciliation. There's no adoption. Without Jesus Christ having come in the flesh, the entire cosmic drama of redemption completely unravels. And every soul goes to hell forever. And see, one of the things we love, one of the things we just love about the incarnation is that, and that makes it so precious to our souls, is that it reminds us that in Christ we have a sympathetic high priest, don't we? We don't have a savior who cannot sympathize with our, with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. This, this is a man who experienced all of the agonies of being human because he knows, he gets it, he knows what you need as a human because he himself became one and lived it all. And he is available in his word to give you whatever you need. Second reality. Second reality. What else do we know for sure? Look what John says. He says, we know that the Son of God has come. Now, that's, not, that's not all we know, because we also know that he has given to us understanding so that we may know him who is true. What is that called? What's that called when your mind is opened and the blindness is removed and the heart is awakened to see the worth and beauty of the living God? What's that called? You know exactly what that's called. That's called, again, the miracle of regeneration. That's exactly what he's talking about. Made alive, born again, new creation, resurrection in, in the soul that awakened the very repentance and faith by which you are saved. And notice, notice the jarring, provocative language that John uses to describe regeneration. Look what he says. He says, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has given, has given to us understanding resulting in our knowledge of the true God. <laughs> That's jarring, isn't it? We know, you know the true and living God this morning only because the Son of God gave you the understanding to do so. be saved, the Son of God had to do something supernatural in our soul. He had to reverse the effects of spiritual death, one of which was a mind hostile and blind, and had he not intervened, we would have never believed and been saved. And again, you remember the payoff of, of regeneration. It's not something done in the past 
for which we look upon with nostalgia? No, regeneration is the impartation of new life that produces real authentic life change in our lives. Save the best for last. Notice the third reality. The third reality, first was the incarnation, second was regeneration, and the cumulative effect of all of that is we have union with the triune God. Look what he says at the end of verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given to us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Here it is. We are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that you don't merely know about God in some inferential, cognizant way? You don't merely know God in some intellectual way composed merely of data and facts. No, what does John say? John says, we are in him who is true. In him. We are in him. What does that mean to be in God? It means, and this is probably the biggest thing that I'm taking away from the Apostle John, it means through faith in Christ, our lives are so inseparably intertwined with the very life of God that he lives his own life in and through us. Because that's what salvation is. It's not merely getting your sins forgiven or, or merely getting to heaven one day. Rather, it is being allowed to enjoy and participate in the very life of the Trinity forever. And the reason why I say Trinity is because of John's theological tongue twister at the end of verse 20. Look what he says. Hang in there. We're almost done. He says, we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. That is poetry. Pure theological, or should I say Trinitarian poetry. John says, we are in the true God. That is, we are in the Father. We are in him. But then without a break or a pause, he says, in his son, Jesus Christ. We're in the father and we're in the son. Do, do you see what he's hinting at? Do you see what John is placing before us? You see, for all eternity before time, the father and son enjoyed perfect, glorious, Trinitarian fellowship and delight. But you see, to be in the Father and the Son means that we have been invited. Connected to the very life of the Trinity, which means that for all eternity, we will be caught in the crossfire of Trinitarian love and fellowship forever. This is the true God and eternal life. That's what we have most to look forward to. Sharing, participating in Trinitarian glory forever. That was why Christ died. Okay, and you might be thinking, all right, well, Jared, that's great. Wow. Trinitarian theology. Union with the Trinity. That's, that's great. That's really great. 
My question is, what am I supposed to do with that? In actual real-life situations. Right? Because this is high-level theology. In fact, this is the highest-level theology there is. What am I supposed to do with that in my life? And that is exactly why verse 21 exists. Technia, fulaxeteheota, apaton edolon. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. I love how John ends the letter. <laughs> no goodbye. No sincerely. No best wishes. No, I'll see you soon. Just little children, guard yourselves from idols. Because that's what you do. That's the application. That's the perfect application to verse 20. Not only to verse 20, get this, that is the most practical implication and application found in the entirety of the Bible. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Because an idol is anything that is not the Father and the Son. Don't you see anything to which you look outside the Trinity for ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction is by its very definition an idol. The thing about idolatry is that it is the cancerous core cesspool root of all the sins we see emerging in our lives. Did you know that? The root of anger, the root of pride, the root of lust, the root of greed, the root of coveting, the root of materialism, the root of fear and laziness and grumbling and complaining and slander and gossip and selfishness is that something has taken God's place as the treasure of the soul. Therefore, find your deepest joy in God through the word and you will keep yourselves from idols. And that's it. It's John's letter. And I close with this. If I could write a letter back to John, I would say very simply, Dear Mr. Zebedee, thank you very much for your first letter. Your other ones too, the gospel and the book of Revelation, but in particular, thank you for your first letter. It's been the hardest letter I've ever preached from in my entire life. And yet you have strengthened my faith and my church's faith, not by giving us wimpy cliches and platitudes or by pulling any punches, but with piercing, penetrating insights that cut into our very souls. Very much look forward to making your acquaintance and the fellowship that we will enjoy in the kingdom of the Son. Thanks again. Your disciple, Jared. Let's pray. Well, Lord, there's something strangely emotional about concluding a letter. Oh, Lord, a letter that has been hard hard to preach, hard to study, hard to listen to, hard to comprehend. Thank you that all that was deliberate to make us thinkers, 
to make us an ironclad people, a callous people in a good way, a tough people. Oh, Lord, a people who boldly interrogate our own souls and ask ourselves the hard questions because we're not banking our lives on our own performance, Lord, but what you have done through your son. I pray that you would make this church an assured people, that you would make them a confident people, not confident in their performance or anything they have done, but an absolute white-knuckled grip confidence as they cling to Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, make us a word-filled people. Make us a word-indwelt people. We just look forward to how you will use the ripple effects of this book as it echoes in our souls through the days and weeks and months and years and that you would make us a people who more brightly display who you are to a world that desperately needs hope and truth. It's in your son's mighty name we pray.